Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, Chief Executive Officer. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. We're looking forward to this conversation today as we get to sit down with a global CEO who's led and transformed a major conglomerate. He's also an outspoken champion of purpose-driven stakeholder capitalism, which we're going to talk a lot about. Clark, in my mind, our guest is a truly world-class leader, a little bit of a unicorn. There's not many boxes that he leaves unticked. He's global. He's lived across the three major continents. He's worked across functions. He's been on boards. He's been a political advisor. And as his LinkedIn profile says, he's now a grandpa. So I am really excited to meet our guest, to learn about his journey and to see how his leadership has transformed over the years. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated. As you know, uh, and I was at the beginning of my career, I spent a couple of years working in Frankfurt in the Russell Reynolds office. To me, the fact that he had this huge transformation of such an iconic German company embedded in German culture, but he really led this and made it happen. So I find the dichotomy of that. I'm dying to hear what he has to say and, and how he got it done. Who's our guest, Clark? Our guest today is Joe Kayser, chairman of the supervisory board of Siemens Energy, the former chief executive of Siemens AG, an iconic 165-year-old German but global company. Joe was the 13th CEO in the company's history. He's also on the board of Daimler AG, Allianz, and NXP Semiconductors. He brings a breadth of experience and experiences to us today. Joe, thank you for joining us and Redefiners. Welcome. Hi, Danas. Hi, Clark. Uh, good, to, good to be with you. Joe, I know you're passionate about sustainability, climate change, and the need for CEOs to take action. You've talked a lot about the urgent need for execution, less talk, more action. Um, under your watch, Zeman was ahead of the game in pledging to become carbon neutral by 2030. What do you think needs to be done to have more urgency around climate change? What's your advice? What, what do you think we should be doing to get more urgent action? The private sector needs to take charge and lead by example and not by putting a lot of programs out there, which may or may not be, uh, you know, reached in 2050, 2060. We need to act based on milestones, which we can tell stories about and uh, motivate others to follow suit. I led a panel at COP26 in Glasgow, which was about identifying next generation leaders, accelerate the number of next generation leaders who therefore will accelerate climate change action. How did you identify the action-oriented young leaders. And you've spoken at One Young World. You're, you've, you've been very passionate about youth and young leaders. How do you pick the up-and-comers? How do you spot them? Um, well, first of all, you know, they are active, so you could see what they do and how they do it. And then you need to get closer together with them and just get to know them. 
I actually did that with one of the German icons of the Fridays for Future movement, uh, Luisa Neubauer. I was offering that they could work with us on board panels to see, you know, how things are being connected, the jobs and innovation and the financing and the responsibility. So we need to bring people closer to us and talk to them and let them and give them a view into our world so that this is not something where people wonder what the hell is going on behind closed doors. So communication, be open, let them closer to the business is very important because otherwise, you know, we are building silos and that doesn't help a connected world. Absolutely. I could not agree more. We found that uh, in the last couple of years, CEOs that prioritize communication unquestionably seen the greatest engagement with their people and their marketplace. As we've looked at all the competencies of great leaders, communications has really risen to the top. And I, I speak from personal experience that I thought I was communicating plenty mm. with Russell Reynolds Associates internally. And what did we learn over the pandemic? Uh, you can't communicate enough. And you, whatever level you think you're communicating, it is not enough. And the same thing with our clients. We were bringing people together from the third or fourth week through the next year, saying we want to share experiences, we want to hear from other people, we want to hear from other board members. And our clients said they couldn't communicate enough with each other, yeah. which was, I think, one of the big learnings recently. Sure. I absolutely agree, Clark. You're, you're spot on. Now, Joe, you've essentially worked at Siemens your entire adult life, starting almost immediately after university studies. I imagine that along those 40 years, other people came knocking on your door, that there were other opportunities and offers along the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and what made you stay at Siemens through those four decades? Yeah, that's an interesting question because two thirds of my life uh, was with Siemens and the other one third was basically, you know, my childhood. At that time, you know, Siemens has been an icon and it was basically doing everything from semiconductors through circuit breakers uh, all the way up to, you know, power plants. So it was a huge conglomerate. And then the company was doing business in about 190 countries in the world. So there was a lot of opportunity to understand different businesses, different cultures in the company, um, you know, different geographies. So that's actually what sort of kept it interesting to me. And sometimes I was maybe a bit too complacent to really take the step to move yeah. someplace else. <laughs> yeah. But at the end, at the end, I was lucky because it sort of paid off yeah. Yes, great experiences. Yes. Clark, you're also a one company man and I've spent um, your entire career with Russell Reynolds. Tell us a little bit about your thinking. And was there ever a time when you got close to leaving? What, what made you stay? Was it the variety? What was it? Well, I, I, technically, I was a baby banker in New York for a few years before joining the firm. I was going to come for two years, go to business school. And then Russ Reynolds was uh, handing off the leadership to his successor and said, you're going to study case studies at business school based on founder transitions. Why don't you live through one, stay here, which I did. And then I went to Germany, and then I went to London, and then I came back to the States, and then I ran Latin America. I ran the private equity business. So I've had about 10 different mm -hmm. jobs over 30 years here, and there was always some new challenge. Um, I did look briefly at leaving um, in 2008. I was joining one of my clients, a private equity firm, and they postponed the offer. 
for a couple of weeks, and we sat down, and Lehman Brothers had gone down over the weekend, and we both decided leaving then would not be a good idea. Thank goodness I didn't get the offer three yeah. weeks earlier. <laughs> Very true. Thankfully, you stayed at Russell Reynolds. Now, Joe, for you, what made you stay at Siemens all those years? Um, I'd love to know, was it opportunistic or did you, you know, proactively think that this was the company you wanted to lead and build your legacy in? This is a company I want to lead and, you know, have a vision on where it ought to be when I leave and what people would say about me when I'm gone. I think that's what really matters in a legacy. Mm -hmm. What are people telling about you when you're gone? And, you know, leave behind the power where a lot of people hide behind or make yeah. you believe that you're the greatest and the latest, although they're all just afraid to speak up and say the truth. Joe, with all those experiences, was there a, a redefiner moment in your career that said, this is a turning point, this is an inflection point? Well, typically there are many of those moments I've never really left Germany, uh, and then I went to Malaysia in the middle of nowhere. Malacca was a beautiful Portuguese settlement, uh, uh, so it was an interesting time to experience the Asian culture. Mm -hmm. So that was a defining moment to become global in a way, and you learn a lot by listening and not by talking so much, because the more you talk in Asia, the less people will yes. open up. Yes. So that was a big experience. It was a defining moment, because I would... You know, in my later years, than when I was CFO or even CEO, I remembered many times the mistakes I made at the time, which helped me a lot. And then I went to the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, 94 till 2000, over more than five years in the center of innovation, of ruthlessness. Hmm. That's been a, a fascinating experience because really the Silicon Valley yeah, it is a geography from San Francisco all the way down to San Jose, maybe now even expanding down to Gilroy. But uh, at the end of the day, it's not just a geography. It is a mindset. Yeah. The real Silicon Valley, you don't see. You don't see it. Mm. It happens underneath the grassroots. It's a network which is uh, second to none. It's a mindset which is second to none. And don't copy the Silicon Valley. Go back, listen, understand, and then understand how you apply it to your geography, to your leadership culture, to your business. Now, in terms of real defining moments, there has been one, if not the darkest moment uh, in our company, and that was what we called the compliance crisis. That was 2006. This is where it was uncovered, okay. you know, in, in, in November 2006 about 200 policemen, well-armed, were searching our headquarters for really? what turned out to be a massive corruption scandal. Wow. And I was I was CFO for a couple of months. And in the morning, I wanted to call my office because I needed a few things to get faxed or mailed, and nobody answered the phone. And I was getting really annoyed with the, my office because they wouldn't answer the phone, and I was in a hurry. And it turned out later that police people were searching my office. So, so that's why they couldn't answer the phone. Uh, we're not allowed to. Uh -huh. The redefining moment came when the truth was uncovered. I didn't know nothing about the whole scale. I knew I didn't know nothing, but the problem was who else didn't know nothing and who would know? And I would say that one year from, from November 2006 till about September, October 2007 has been the 
biggest, most decisive moment because that was going about whether this company was still allowed to do business or not. Joe, did it shape what kind of chief executive you became? You were unaware of this huge scandal. You're wrapped up in it. Did it shape who you would trust and who you'd listen to going forward? That's exactly what it is, Clark. That's exactly what it is. I mean, first of all, I knew I didn't have anything to do with it. I knew I was the CFO for three months. Had I been a CFO for three years, that would have been the end of the careers. Hmm. Either I would be part of the system or I would be too stupid to uncover something what's going on in your books. So either way, it would have been the end. So I was lucky that I was a latecomer, so I didn't know anymore whom to trust, and I needed to build a team to go fix it. And I had no clue about how to deal with that, because how, how would I? Had I ever done that before, I would probably be in jail <laughs> or someplace else. I was clueless about what needed to be done. But I knew I got to do something about it because we have a problem. Yeah. Joe, I would say that is a German understatement. I have a problem. <laughs> you had a huge scandal that you inherited uh, that for the sake of our listeners, what started out as a small 2006 investigation in Munich rippled into a global compliance scandal with investigations around the world. And Joe had to step into this and take one of the great solid icons of German business forward. Yeah. Joe, where'd you begin? How did you move forward from this? Well, somebody told me, look, Joe, move. Just, you know, do whatever you can, because if you go through hell, don't stop. That's the worst you can do. And it was very right. And uh, so that was very decisive. Because what I learned was that you need to have a team and a, a reliable team. And so we uh, asked Arthur Levitt, who was a retired chairman of the SEC. And Arthur was helping me a lot, what, you know, what to do and how to do it. Yeah. So he said, look, before the DOJ comes after you, uh, or the SEC enforcement, you know, you need to go and ask for an independent investigation that may help you you know, to be proactive. Hi, this is Rich Fields, head of the Board Effectiveness Practice at Russell Reynolds Associates based in Boston. Sustainability has never been a higher priority for companies or their boards than it is today. There is tremendous and growing pressure from key corporate stakeholders, including investors, customers, employees, political and regulatory bodies, and others, to tackle sustainability issues. It is no longer seen as adjacent to business performance, as there is growing agreement that attention to material sustainability issues leads to improved financial performance. While a lot has already been done, many companies have a long way to go to integrate a sustainability mindset into their organizations. To better understand the current state of play, we interviewed more than 130 corporate directors and C-suite executives from around the world and surveyed more than 1,500 additional corporate leaders. What we found was that when boards decide to increase their focus on sustainability, they often struggle to determine what steps to take and how much effort to put behind those initial actions. To help boards be more effective partners on sustainability-related topics, we created a 10-step roadmap for board leadership on sustainability issues, including attention to board culture, strategy, risk alignment, structure and process, and board composition. As sustainability efforts gain momentum in society, and as expectations grow that corporations will play a central role in making the world a better place, it is essential that board leaders know how to enable and drive sustainability within their enterprises and share what they are doing with the broader world. To learn more about our 10-step roadmap, 
our sustainability disclosure assessment, and other ways that boards can help their companies become more sustainable, go to russellreynolds.com insights. Joe, so one of the reasons why you said you stayed at Siemens for so long was because it had all these different divisions and your experiences were so diverse. And yet one of the most important decisions that you made for the future of the company was to actually split the company up into three distinct, more agile business units. How difficult a decision was that for you to make? And did you realize what an immense task it would be at the outset? Uh, sort of, but not really. In the beginning, first of all, Siemens is a German icon. Mm -hmm. People say, what the hell are you doing? You split up that company, you destroy that company. It's totally, totally nuts. How can you do that? You're doing so well. And I tell you today, if I had probably put that to vote with the employees, nobody would have given me a majority. And I tell you, maybe even on the managing board, people would have said, come on, let us take a deep breath. After the so-called compliance crisis was solved, also thanks to the CEO at the time, Peter Löscher, this was sort of like, well, now we, we killed the dragon. You, you realize already uh, I'm a grandpa, so I need to tell fairy tales now to grandchildren. Defeating the dragon was, you know, to, to manage the compliance crisis. But that was not the business purpose. The business purpose was to develop, produce uh, great goods for the greater good of society, sell them well at the profit and have a sustainable way of doing business. And that didn't go really well. So then we had the, the financial crisis and this and that. Mm-hmm. The company was in bad shape in 2013. So the first thing was to realign the company to where we are good at. I knew it would take time, such a tanker to be, you know, realigned. So that's why we said 2020, we wanted to catch up again with our competitors. We did not always arrive at the path we were actually planning to achieve, but we achieved the goals. We finished ahead of time 2018. We had an all-time high on our share price. But then I was sitting back and said, is that company already prepared for the future? And the answer was maybe, but potentially not, because we are too big, not really focused. And if you look at changes of that magnitude, like the Internet of Things software coming into the play, change to knowledge-based healthcare was just not good enough. So I decided to stay for another three years. And then what came out was the so-called Vision 2020 Plus. And uh, in a nutshell, the outcome of the 2020 Plus was we need to have three companies, one healthcare company, one energy company, and one industrial automation software company, and make sure they are focused enough because focus, focus and adaptability would be the only two tools to make sure that we are able to master the magnitude of transformatory changes at lightning speed. And so that was the thing. And the result was that we now have three companies, Siemens Engineers, which got IPO'd, now has a market cap of about 70 billion, which is more than Bayer or BISF or, or BMW. We have Siemens Energy, which now is in the middle of the energy agenda to be transformed to renewable. And then you have a, a market and technology leading Siemens industrial automation company. But I was so convinced mm. that this is the right thing to do that I said, look, I've been with that company for 40 years. I don't own it, but it's my company by my reputation. And that's what I want to leave as a legacy that we have three companies which are able, not guaranteed, 
but able to manage the next 10 years of one of the most complicated, most massive transformations of all time. Joe, you, you, this is what's amazing. Okay, so you even say your own management team probably would have voted against the transformation. Uh, your German employees probably would have voted against the transformation. Definitely, definitely. And so you got it done. You've talked before about the support of your board and about knowing it was the right thing to do. What were some of those board meetings like and how difficult was it to push ahead? I could tell there was a lot of resistance. Uh, on the managing board, the managing team is a really good team. We have one of the best CFOs in the world with Ralph Thomas. Uh, Roland Bush was there, who is now my successor. So really, really good people. But they also were sort of concerned about if that goes wrong or, you know, is, isn't that too much of an effort because they knew there will be a lot of resistance in the societal environment, even in parts the political environment. And the German culture, unfortunately, is a bit a culture of holding on to the good old days. This was really hard uh, to push that, but I, I knew this is important. I knew we could do it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So I was uh, talking to a few people, and I think one of the most uh, supportive ones was our chairman, uh, Jim Snabe, who has been there before, and he was a big supporter on the supervisory board to also to deliver the supervisory board. And then we finally did it. And, you know, everything just turned out even better than we thought. A rare thing to experience, I have to say. Yeah. Everybody's supportive. And this is also, you know, what leadership is all about. If you really are convinced you're doing the right thing, Absolutely. you need to put the potato on the fork. Yeah. You know, you need to put the potato on the fork and say, look, this is what I stand for. There is nobody else to hide behind. I stand for that. I do that. I believe it is good for the greater good. And talk a lot about your intent and keep people up uh, to date on where we are and what we do. Leadership is also about learning from your failures, though. So this, I think, as you say, that this is you leaving your legacy and implementing your vision for Siemens. What would you say is the converse of that? What, what's one of the biggest failures that you've had and what did you learn from it? I think the biggest uh, I have been, let's say, involved with was that Siemens lost the telecommunications business. Siemens was founded with a pointer telegraph. And uh, so the telecommunication business in Siemens was the starting point, the root of the whole company. Mm -hmm. We were number one in the world. And then at some point in time, a couple of people from the West Coast came over to see our managers at the telecommunication management office. And as people said, look, you know, we have this invention. We believe that you can make phone calls over the internet. And our people said, you're totally crazy. You're nuts. You have no clue. First of all, it doesn't work. Secondly, had it ever worked, we would be the ones to invent it. And they sent them home. And those people were people from uh, Cisco. Mm -hmm. And Cisco at the time, they wanted to win over Siemens to support their IP protocol technology. So arrogant and complacent, you know, put the company at risk. So we lost the telecommunications notch and we were forced then to put our telecommunications equipment business together with Nokia to sort of at least rescue some of it. But it was gone. 20 billion business gone because we did not listen to the market and how disruptive that would be. And that was the biggest failure. And I said, this must never, ever happen to our company again. Mm. And the driving force from that learning was the split up of the company. That one made me so 
clear and so certain that this needs to be done. Yeah, which which means that good came out of that failure. Clark, can I turn it to you? You have been CEO of Russell Reynolds for a successful 10 years. Do you have any moments of failure from which you can learn and from which maybe good came out of? Well, luckily people have short memories because it's success now, but there were plenty of failures early on. Listen, everyone told me at the beginning, do not try and do too many things at one time. Uh, a company can only focus on two, maybe three things, three initiatives at the same time. Don't do more. I felt we had too much to do and we were a small enough company we could do more than that. I was wrong. My advisors were right. Yeah, and yeah. we took on too much at once. And people finally said a year into what we called renewal and growth, RNG, our strategy, it's too much at one time. What do we need to focus on? And we focused on the boardroom and our, and our relationships with board members, which has been the winning strategy. Sure. But, you know, advisors are there to advise. Listen, I didn't listen. And um, maybe I was arrogant, Joe, in thinking I knew better than those experienced people telling me not to do too much at one time. Sounds familiar, really. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you spoke at a global forum for young leaders called The One Young World, which for our listeners who may not know, this is a global forum for young leaders. It's held every year in the summer and they convene to essentially accelerate social impact. You talked about the need to create a new kind of economy and you called it a social ecological market economy, which is supported by purpose-driven capitalism. Can you tell us what you mean by that and why it's so critical, particularly now? Well, what I mean by that is that we need to not just focus on, on, on shareholder value, but also be able to include the societal needs going forward. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of divide out there between the rich and the poor, between developing economies and the developed economies, between the younger and the older generations. Just, you know, talk about China, the United States, democratic system, open market economy versus, let's say, government-led capitalism. And that's why companies need to be mindful about being inclusive of the different interests. And this is especially true, not just because the society in the end gives the license to do business. This is especially important because what we see is those technology changes, like the Internet of Things or what we call the Fourth Industrial Revolution, software, uh, online platforms, what will happen is that, you know, the magnitude of change in productivity and, uh, and time to market will be huge at a time and a speed which has never seen before. We need to take people along. There will be a lot of people losing the job. There will be millions of people who will need to be retrained and requalified for, you know, the new opportunities. And that one needs to be something which is on top of the agenda of uh, especially global companies because we have a responsibility to help that. Otherwise, we will further drive uh, the societal divide and that is not a good thing to continue with. So that's why I was very, uh, you know, very clear about that doctrine which people say Milton Friedman was once saying in the 70s, the business of business is business, mm. is not cutting it mm. anymore. We've got to look into the sustainability matter. We have a climate crisis, but the climate crisis can only be solved together as a global societal effort. Of course. But also somebody needs to make the money which is necessary to do the transformation. Mm. So it all ties together social market economy and uh, the sustainability matter, and that needs to be organized. And uh, corporate leaders uh, now have the responsibility to get it done because 
the political leaders that are being elected for three, four years, and then somebody else may come online. So we need to go ahead and give examples on how to do that. I think you're so right. The world is going to depend upon the private sector to make changes. And you look at people who gathered in Glasgow, and we need to push the private sector and public-private partnerships to make things happen. Absolutely. The next generations are relying upon us to do this and, and, and make the changes to reverse what's happened. Hi, everyone. As we prepare for the holidays, we wanted to take a step back and really think about all the things that we're grateful for in 2021. Grateful for our friends and family, our health, our work colleagues. And when it comes to this Redefiners podcast, we're incredibly grateful for our amazing guests who took time out of their busy schedules to talk to us, including Tamara McCleary, who talked about leadership, tech equity, and the future of technology and work. Troy Vincent, who shared his leadership insights from the football field to the front office of the NFL, and for whom, quite frankly, I learned a lot about what I would call American football. Aurelia Wynn, who shared her stories of partnership and collaboration from the front lines of the COVID pandemic. Jim Hageman-Snabe, who shared his advice and insights on reinvention and transformation at a huge scale. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us on this incredible journey to talk with global leaders who are redefining what it means to lead in today's incredibly complex world. We're not done by a long shot. We'll be talking to Leslie Stahl, award-winning journalist and 60 Minutes correspondent, Sally Krocek, co-founder and CEO of Elevest, Jason Lee, founder and CEO of Daily Pay, but those are just a few of the many people that we'll sit down with next year. Be sure to tune in and see who we have on the program next. And until then, we wish you very happy holidays and good health. See you in January. Joe, we finish each of these podcasts with what we call the rapid fire round, where you don't get to think, you have to answer the question unexpectedly. It's five questions. We ask everybody rapid fire. So I'm going to kick off if that's okay. What's your favorite hobby? Running. Um, if you could spend a day in someone else's shoes, Joe, who would it be and why? And you can't say Clark Murphy. <laughs> I could only dream about that. Maybe. Um, <laughs> probably the Queen of England. Interesting. I like that. I like that. Because, you know, you could have asked me, who is the person you want to have a selfie with? I would probably also say the Queen of England because I, I, I admire her. Yeah. Uh, she is a she's a she's a lady. She's seen the world. Uh, she's in office for so long. She's mindful about environments. So I respect her a lot. I have to say. Um, next question: What is the one important skill every person should have? How do you call that intuition? Intuition. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the best habit of leadership? The best habit is listening and acting. That's something what makes good leaders. And this is what the matter is all about. As the phrase we've always heard, you have two ears and one mouth and maybe use them proportionately. Proportionally and in the right order, especially. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, last question. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself when you were 25? Sit down and relax and think before you talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you go, don't be so rash. 
Well, Joe, listen, there's a lot learned here. Let me just summarize what I heard. From your own experiences, listen more than you talk. Your experience living in Asia and observing, listening, and having respect. But in Silicon Valley, it's a mindset. It's not just a geography. And things happen that you don't see. So the ability to have a mindset as well as listening well. You had to defeat the dragon of the compliance scandal, but then come out into something new and reshape. You said realigning. And the super tanker of Siemens did need to realign in 17 and 18. And you arrived in an endpoint, but you didn't follow the path you set out. So we think of you and Siemens as very straightforward, et cetera, but yet you were able to have the flexibility of your path. You didn't sit on the past. You didn't hold on to the good old days. So even against kind of this very traditional company and traditional headquarters, you said Vision 2020 plus, and you did understand what the future would bring. I will never forget your phrase just now, put the potato on the fork. Thank you. We are very appreciative of you being here and taking the time because what you did is not really happened before in a conglomerate that big and certainly not a German conglomerate. So well done. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Redefiners. We have learned an awful lot from you and your leadership journey. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.